Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, I have on John and Yitong, founders of VectorDAO. VectorDAO is one of the most interesting projects I've come across in the past few months, and they're really redefining and sort of rediscovering the types of contribution that are possible in Web3 and DAOs. VectorDAO is many things, and, I think, and I'll let them describe it, but composed of some of the most talented designers, artists, and contributors in crypto. They've worked on a lot of different projects, both for traditional startups as well as protocols. And yeah, I've had many conversations with them in the past about the difference between working for, for protocols versus startups, how they think about sort of building a scalable and sustainable organization, and yeah, just many other open questions in terms of the sort of new possibilities of Web3 and, and working for DAOs. So yeah, with that said, I'll just jump right into it. And yeah, welcome Itong and John. Excited to be here. Hey, hey. So to kick things off, John, do you want to just, for those that aren't familiar, what is VectorDAO and sort of what is the genesis behind it? Yeah, you kind of described it quite well. We are a collective of creatives, designers, developers, artists who do work for Web3 protocols in exchange for ownership in them. So this typically comes in the form of tokens. And we're trying to make it as easy as possible for contributors to come into Web3 and do productive things for these protocols. And oftentimes they can be sort of pre-token and sometimes they're post-token. So they might be governance, treasuries or public goods, things of that nature. And how big is VectorDAO, sort of who's composed of it and like what kinds of people are you looking for? Yeah, so we're around 80 contributors large right now. And we started very much focused on what Yitong and I do ourselves. So our background is in, in design. And so for the most part, we initially started doing like brand work, product design work in exchange for tokens for crypto projects. And as we've grown, we've seen a lot of interest from a broad range of skill sets. So people who come from application dev, artists, in addition to some protocol devs who've joined the DAO. And a big part of what we do is we do work for crypto protocols. We get tokens and we socialize the risks and the gains from these tokens. Very similar to a venture firm, right? The idea being, if you can diversify your holdings, oftentimes projects will go to zero. You just don't know what's going to happen. It's very risky. So can we use community resources to sort of share the risk and the upside through pooling our tokens together as a group to sort of have collective benefits? Yeah, economically, I would think of it almost a little bit like being able to LP into a fund with your time. And this is kind of for people who are maybe not of the capital allocator class, but more of the, I am very good at my job and would like to put my skills to use somewhere in like a very skin in the game kind of way. I like that framing. And I know this isn't what your are is, but with the, the sort of implication that capital allocators aren't necessarily super skilled at a specific thing, which I think has some truth to it, right? I think the specialist investor approach in crypto is definitely becoming a, a sort of major theme in, in venture, just like what specific skills do you actually bring to the table? And there's lots of funds now that are recognizing that and bringing in engineers in-house and thinking about things like mechanism design or audits, research or design. So yeah, I think that's a really good, interesting way to frame it. Itang, obviously you and John work together at Coinbase and what inspired you guys to, like, you guys can work for different crypto projects and, and sort of work on anything in your spare time, but like, what inspired you to really create this sort of 
structure, create this DAO that can have tens or, or even hundreds of people, like why not keep it small and sort of siloed? Yeah, I mean, the story of how we started was pretty informal, actually. This is sort of just like a thing that John and I have been doing in our own time separately. And I think John has even a, a better story about how he got into it, which is basically that like one of his friends invested somewhere he, he did work for, and then the investment paid out way more than his work. And he was like, whoa, like maybe I should be doing work, but for an exchange for an investment. And so we were both kind of in this a little bit of the same headspace just doing work for an investment, for a safe or for some tokens. And then we started talking and we're like, hey, wouldn't it make a lot of sense for us to combine efforts? One, it's sort of more fun to work with your friends. Two, you get to share in your skill sets, cover for each other, you know, round out the value proposition. And then three, it kind of puts a lot of the risk off our back in that now we don't have to have the one, one of the two things that we worked on to pan out. We can sort of pull all of our projects together and sort of have a little bit more of a socialized return and risk profile. And then as we were doing this for us, we were bringing in our friends who cover some of our gaps in our skill set. So neither John and I are the best brand designers out there. We're pretty upfront about this. So we brought in our friends who are really good at brands, people like Adam. And then we brought in other people after that to round out more and more of the skill sets. And then before we knew it, we were kind of in a place where there was now like a couple dozen people in, in a group chat and we were, we were at a fork in the road where, okay, well, it's clearly more than nothing now. And this is more than just a group chat. What are we? And so we, we had sort of come to this point where we could decide to become a little bit of a fun, sort of, a, you know, like some of the stuff that you were alluding to, Derek, which is like a firm, a venture firm with a very strong point of view on their value add, which for us would have been design. Or... We could have kept going and kept doing the thing, that, uh, the thing that we were doing, which is sort of this like big group chat of makers. And we took a look at ourselves and we're like, I don't think either of us are particularly good capital allocators. And it's not like a, that, like a thing that we quit Coinbase to do. So we kind of wanted to kind of full ass try this experiment of like, what if we actually try to scale this like a DAO? And that's where we committed to, to this path and have been uh, trying to slowly scale things ever since. And now we're, now we're around 80 people. Awesome. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I obviously we've been, I've been following the work that Vector has been doing and, and we've been chatting for, for a while now, over, over a year, year and a half. And yeah, it's been fascinating just to, to follow your guys' process, see how your, your thinking has evolved over time. And yeah, one big question I have is how do you, like as a DAO, you guys have sort of lots of end products, whether it's brand or design or a website or product. How do you ensure sort of consistent messaging, branding, and arguably most importantly, quality across everything you do? Because at the end of the day, like whether you think of Vector DAO as a, as a startup or organization or, or company, like whatever your mental model is, like people will associate sort of the work you do with the brand. So as a DAO with a ton of different contributors over 80 that are, I'm assuming have lots of different projects, like how do you ensure sort of consistent standards. Yeah. So one thing that's important to note is Vector is very much not an agency. Typically, when you go to a traditional creative agency, they have a specific style that you're, you're pretty much paying for. They have a, have a strong point of view on aesthetic or a particular process they like to run. Vector is more like a independent marketplace where every single member of Vector has their own process, their own aesthetic, and their own way of working. And we encourage that. The thing that unifies 
how members of VectorDAO work within VectorDAO is, like you're saying, quality. And so that all happens on our membership committee. We have a pretty rigorous sort of interview process and membership process. We try to, despite being 80 people, we've actually grown quite slowly compared to the number of applicants we've received. Sometimes people's annoyance, but that's been the critical thing, right? Is we try to only bring in people that are going to up-level our general capabilities and maintain our standard so that we can guarantee that when we put someone on a project, we know that the quality is going to be really good. The second part of this, though, is that we also have a, a big emphasis on matching. So when we interview projects, we actually turn a lot of projects down. We don't think it's a good fit for our contributor base. Everything is opt-in. So, you know, if no one's excited about a project that's coming to us, we don't work on it. And that tends to be a, a win-win both for us, because that means we're not doing work we don't, we aren't excited about. But it's also a win for clients who get to have people work on the project only if they're actually passionate and excited about what they're working on, which usually is a much better experience for both parties. So that's sort of a key difference, right? Like no one's going to a contributor and saying, hey, you have to work on this, even though you hate esports or you hate DeFi or whatever it is, because, you know, you're going to get fired. Everything is opt-in at Vector. And the main, the main quality control is in membership. So we only sort of admit people we think are at the highest bar or the highest level of their craft. Yeah, and just to double click on sort of what John said, like, I know Derek, you, you mentioned earlier that we have like quite a few product lines or service lines, rather. The way that we think about it, is, it's less sort of around the service lines that we offer, but more rather, who are the best people that we can bring in who would be a valuable member of this community? And let's build what we do around these people. So if it, like we didn't start out doing application development. We were just purely a design collective. But then as we got really talented developers who applied, we were like, hey, actually, it would make a lot of sense for us to build sort of like a development practice around these people too. And that's kind of how we've been growing. So it's been less of a, we want to be doing this and therefore let's go recruit people for that. But rather more if we have really talented people, how do we best apply their skills to contribute to different protocols? Yeah, on that point, it's always interesting describing what Vector is because internally, if you like ask us who our quote unquote, who our customer is or who our user is, our customer is really our contributor. We essentially do everything we can to create the best contributor experience possible. And we're sort of trying to create a new way of working that's kind of in between, you know, a full-time gig and freelance where traditionally both of these had pros and cons to them, right? Traditionally, like full-time employment was very much a bundled deal. You know, you sign an employment contract and you're agreeing to a package deal across, you know, lifestyle, compensation, your job description, where you work, who you work with, the culture you're joining. Freelance, you get a lot more independence. Maybe you get more freedom across your lifestyle, not the type of work you do, but it can be lonely at times or there isn't as much of a culture there. We're trying to create this new sort of hybrid way of working where something that more recently has come up is this sort of theme of being independent together, where you still get to maintain your individual autonomy and sovereignty over your practice or your style of working or what clients you want to work with. But there's a bunch of shared resources, including obviously our, our pool token thing, but also the community and the social aspect and being able to sort of engage with peers that you respect. And so this is like a big value prop. And so when we think about how we shape vector down what we do, it's really about how do we create the best contributor experience for the top 1% of talent and bringing in really good clients as part of that. So everything is a function of like, how do we help our contributors in the DAO? Yeah, that is an interesting way of looking at it sort of in reverse and sort of the main customers and the main users of VectorDAO really are the, the contributors because that is what makes or break the sort of long-term success and roadmap, sort of however you want to define that. 
when you're sort of hiring and, and looking to bring in people to a traditional startup, there's sort of lots of different philosophies, but obviously people talk about things like, oh, do they level up the organization? Is this someone you would want to work for? Like what sort of unique skill sets do they bring to the table? Like, is that pretty similar to how you guys think about it? Like, is there any difference in terms of the sort of archetype person? I'm guessing like one, one important thing, at least from my outside vantage point, would just be like, what kind of commitment can this person bring? Are they like serious about crypto? Are they sort of, how sort of into it are they? Like, I guess along those lines, like, is VectorDAO generally composed of people at existing crypto companies that are interested in working on other things? Or is it like people interested in breaking in? Or is it a mix of both? Yeah, we're, I mean, you actually touched on a, a couple of things that we really look for. The baseline for us is, of course, like caliber of the contributor skills. So we're fairly demanding on somebody's skill set. We're trying to really create sort of a group of people who are really the best at their craft. So that's for the first bar. And then the second one is, do they actually have time to contribute to the DAO? And we've, we've made some pretty difficult choices, I think, in the past that have been like relatively culture defining for us, which is like turning down people who are really, really good at what they do and are like widely known in the community, but that we knew that they wouldn't have time to contribute. And we've, so we've had conversations with people who are like, hey, can you meet our expectation of doing something every quarter? And if you can't, We'd love to have you around, but realistically, it's not really going to be a good experience for you or, or the community. And so we've prioritized engagement or at least the availability to engage over even the skill set that somebody could bring over to the, to the table. And then the last factor that we check for is an interest in crypto and Web3. For us, that's also super important. It's the only thing that we do, so they better be interested in it. And this is sort of like a, a thing that I carry from my time at Coinbase, which is sort of like... A, I think a Coinbase, one thing that we didn't do super well at is really emphasize people who are genuinely excited about the space. I think we were very good at it in the early days, but you know, as the company grew from a couple of hundred people to a couple of thousand people, like I've seen the culture sort of dilute because that wasn't the priority. So for us at Vector, it's been a thing that we, we, we've been indexing pretty strongly on. Well, one thing that we realized we have to do as we scale and as we grow and as the entire industry of what to be continues to develop is onboard new people, new talent into the space. Like we aren't going to get where we want to go with the existing amount of talent we have. And so I'd say in the beginning of our journey, it reflects this very much. Like in the beginning of our journey, it was mostly people who have already worked at crypto protocols or had former experience working in crypto. As we've grown, we started to focus more on education and up-leveling and bringing people into crypto that are you know best in class at what they do within their craft. And so I see this becoming a bigger and bigger part of what we do, but always if there's, I think that to Tidong's, what Yidong was saying earlier, it's like we gauge for interest. Like if you're interested and you just need help, you know, learning about how you can apply design or, or brand skills or front end skills to, to crypto, Vector is a great place for you. I mean, I think, yeah, like a lot of DAOs, it's the same thing as, as group chats where it's like past a certain number of people in like a Telegram group chat, if you're not very intentional, about curating the group and making sure that people are participating in and don't lose interest, like things get diluted. People that lose interest, people lose motivation. So yeah, I think it's periodically important just to like set these kinds of reminders and maintain sort of high, 
like both departs at all times. And I think it, it is doable. It's just, you gotta be. I think earlier you had made this comparison, Derek, to sort of like at a company you hire for certain functions. And I think being a DAO, you're kind of halfway between a company and a market. So like part of our thinking is that, yes, there are areas that we think we are short on that we would like to staff. But on the other side, like we also share some of the thinking around sort of like a managed marketplace where if you read a lot of the, the marketplace thinking, like people care a lot about, are you a demand-driven marketplace or are you a supply-driven marketplace? We're not fully a market, but some of this, uh, this thinking applies to us too, which is that like, look, for us, we are clearly a supply-driven market, right? Like if you get the best talent out there, like projects will come because projects really need contributors and they want to work with the best contributors. So although we do sometimes like have a sort of like demand-driven approach to this stuff, which is like, we need some projects done and we're missing people in this skill set. Most of the time, frankly, we are supply driven in that like we look at the best people and we try to get them and then we build build the practice around them. Yeah, well, one thing I was going to add, Yidong, to your earlier point around making tough trade-offs where maybe someone comes in our door is really talented, top of their craft, but don't have sort of the availability to meaningfully contribute and be part of the community. But it's interesting because when we think about DAOs today, definitionally, there's a category of DAOs that meet sort of the semantic meaning of decentralized autonomous organization. And then there's a group of organizations that maybe don't meet, meet that sort of rigid semantic definition, but are still called DAOs and maybe are more appropriately called like internet communities or internet organizations. And Vector is kind of interestingly in between, but I'm bullish on this latter trend, regardless of whether it's definitionally a DAO or not, whether you're you know in a, a community that invests in NFTs together or a community that does work together. There's an interesting trend that I'm noticing, which is if you look at like sort of early social networks, these social networks essentially reflected your offline friends online. It wasn't normal for you to like necessarily meet new people. It was actually maybe creepy to do that. It feels like we're going toward a world where it's now normal again to make sort of quote unquote internet or modern friends. And these new DAOs, whether they're investment DAOs or service DAOs or whatever you want to call them, are sort of these new outlets to do that. And that's something that I didn't expect to learn going into Vector, but has become a big part of what we do. And why sort of like bringing people in that are super engaged is really important to our value prop. Because a big part of Vector is that people enjoy being able to work together, being independent together. Being a freelancer sometimes can be very lonely, especially if you're working in Web3. And being able to work together with friends is an interesting value prop that I think is going to scale. I don't know where I'm going with this, but I generally think this is a trend that is maybe underrated, the power of internet communities and becoming something very interesting, very valuable, or how, how humans sort of connect in the future. No, I, I, I think it's a good point you bring up. And and it's an interesting line of thought, sort of the philosophy of not over-indexing on a specific direction or a specific like product line or, or shipping date, which again, some people might feel like that's like, oh, not move quickly or, or they're moving with purpose, but I don't necessarily agree. It's like, if you have high quality and talented people and they're engaged and, and good at collaborating with, with others, then the bet you're making is that over time, those two ingredients are the most important thing that over time, something cool, something big will, will come of it, right? Whether it's something you guys, I mean, I, honestly, just, I could see you guys building like new different protocols or, or companies out of VectorDAO or, 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 or sort of doing other things. I think there's a lot of different ways this could go. So it seems to me it's just from talking to you guys, that's quality of contributor and then engagement level are, are the two most important ingredients. Everything else is 
sort of secondary most. And yeah, it's just an interesting sort of way to look at it. But I think it makes sense because yeah, that is what it's built. Just trying to trust the process. Yeah, exactly. In terms of the projects that you guys work with, is there a specific sort of archetype or, or theme? What are some of the things that you guys have done in the past? Yeah, so I would categorize our working sort of to two categories. So the first category of work is what we call like venture style work, where we're working with typically sort of pre-token in venture terms, maybe like seed stage or I'm at the latest series A stage startups who have aspirations to become decentralized crypto protocols. And we're typically doing everything from what we like to say is we, we help these companies go or these projects go zero to one. So we'll do sort of your first brand identity, you know, your marketing page and the MVP of your product, either on the product design side or even implementing it. So that's the first category of work. More recently, we started to do work for sort of post-token projects or projects that have now launched. They're potentially in the process of or are already decentralized and have functioning governance. And this largely came up because a lot of the projects we worked with in the early days were like, hey, now that we're a decentralized protocol, we'd actually love it if you could continue working for us and contributing to our community through governance. And so this has been a new muscle that we started to have to learn how to do, doing work and providing services for crypto protocols through governance and getting funded through these treasuries. It's a whole different skill set. And in our mind, we actually think this might become a larger percentage of the work we do. Right now, it's predominantly sort of venture style work. And I think the sort of quote unquote public work is actually going to grow. And so we're pretty excited to see this happen. And for us, this dovetails incredibly well in terms of sort of like a, an engagement model where we take venture bets early on on pre-protocol labs entities. So that we eventually, when they do become a protocol, we are heavily incentivized to protect our bags, frankly, by keep contributing to the protocol. And we're super well positioned to do it because we've done a lot of the initial work, whether that's in the, the product design, whether that's building your first application. So we're super familiar with the product, the community, and sort of what they're looking for. And it puts us in a really good position to be contributors to their protocol via governance. How have you guys found the experience with governance so far? I think I asked this question to, to a lot of guests. It's been a big spag. I think sometimes it's, it's been frustrating going through governance. It's slower, it's efficient, but it's also something new and, and interesting and allows a much larger set of people to see what you're working on. We've had some episodes on Vita DAO in the past, which is basically, yeah, creating products, services having to literally sell it public through governance. So yeah, curious what your guys' sort of thoughts are, are here having exported. Oh man. I mean, you guys are probably like far more experts at this than, than we are having done this for a, a far longer time than we have. But I think John and I are just coming off of this nouns proposal that we made maybe, gosh, like a day ago. So we'll talk, probably be talking a lot about that. And hopefully by the time this episode comes out, it'll have passed. But yeah, it's a very different kind of sales motion, I would say. It's sort of like somewhere between enterprise sales and lobbying slash community building. Yeah, I don't know. I think for us, for me at least, it's felt kind of natural. It is a lot of the same work that we do internally within VectorDAO, sort of building coalitions, pushing things through, not via sort of God-given authority, but sort of via hopefully making something that makes sense for a community. 
and then rallying people behind an idea. And so it's a little bit more complex, but it's sort of coming to us, like, I think fairly naturally. One of the more challenging aspects is compared to venture deals, someone's coming to you and saying, hey, this is what I need. I'm very clear. This is my priority. I'm willing to spend resources on it. When you are trying to do work for a public protocol, it's a free for all. You're not just a executor. You are also the person kind of acting as a mini founder thinking about how can I bring value to this community? And that's actually really hard work to do. And then not only that, justify it to your sort of board of directors or your stakeholders, which is sort of the token holder base. So I would say that's like a key difference is there's a lot of resources in these, tre in these treasuries sitting there. But the key is, are you able to come up with a executable idea or plan that brings value back to that community and pitch it to them in a way that makes sense? Yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword. The fact that sort of if you want to contribute to these public goods protocols, you have to, yeah, as you said, basically create the, like act as, as a founder, create your, your, your sort of product and solution, pitch it to public. Like should protocols sort of have a bit more of a guiding direction? Do they, would it be helpful to have more of a, a top-down vision and able to go out and find people, right? I think you could argue that sort of the existing model is, is constraining and limiting the number of people that are able to actually work for these protocols just because it is difficult and have to go through all these, you have to be such a self-starter. So not everyone likes to sort of do that. So yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword, but curious what you guys think. Yeah, from, from the service provider standpoint, I'm like Vector, we don't really have an agenda beyond creating, again, the best experience for our contributors and bringing them work and opportunities that they're passionate about. And what I can say from our perspective, trying to essentially do work for these protocols is that yeah, it's extremely hard. And I think it would, they would benefit a lot from having some type of, I don't want to say top down, but some type of organizing body that thinks on behalf of token holders to come up with roadmaps or general direction that the protocol wants to move in, that is productive, and that we all believe collectively as token holders is good for the protocol. So yeah, I, I don't know what this looks like, but I think it would benefit a, a lot from this. Totally. Just continue on the, on the theme of working on longer term projects for, for public protocols through governance. Like, like, can you talk a bit about this stance proposal that you guys put up? I, I actually hadn't seen it and I just pulled it up, but. Yeah, I mean, for this first one, the way that we think about sort of collaborating with nouns is a sort of this like wisdom that we, we've heard sort of around the protocol contribution, which is that it's kind of important to first establish a foothold within a community, build relationships via a sort of like a smaller engagement, and then eventually ladder up into sort of like a long term relationship with the DAO. So we, we view this first one as very much of like, a, hey, we are a vector. This is kind of what we do. And we would like to help. This is a tractable, well-defined, scoped proposal for something for us to collaborate on. And so the specific proposal that we're doing for nouns is that we're going to commission eight artists from Vector and its community to do a bunch of riffs on sort of the noun glasses, but general uh, noun theme. And then we're going to put those up as wheat paste posters around New York during NFT NYC. 
and turned that into a little bit of like a scavenger hunt where every single one of these posters will have a QR code for people to be able to mint the art on these posters, but only sort of IRL. And then sort of creating a little bit of a game around this, but also using that opportunity to spread the nouns meme. And if that's something that's kind of successfully passed and executed, we'd love to come back for a longer term, more ambitious proposals with the community. Yeah, creating proposals for, for nouns, and I'd say maybe even NFT projects more broadly, is a much more interesting, potentially like unconstrained, easier thing to do. Because for nouns, like the whole goal is to get the next person, they generate revenue when the next person buys the next noun in their daily auction. And so the mandate becomes a lot easier, right? Where your whole goal is like spread awareness, propagate the meme such that more people know about it, creates more buyers or more impetus or more buying pressure for the next auction which replenishes the treasury. We've also gone a step further and we're like, hmm, how can we sort of pay this forward and actually have our project bring revenue back to the nouns treasury? And so like Yidong said, the artworks are actually being sold. So if you sort of scan the QR code and you buy one of these unique editions, that revenue goes back to VectorDAO. But our mandate is to actually use those funds to buy a noun. So we become sort of a participant in their ecosystem and replenish the treasury again. So they have a very interesting mechanism. It's a single mechanism through which they generate revenue everything can be focused on that, which I think is really beneficial to them. Yeah, I think that's one of the major strengths of Nuts. I've spoken to my friend Brian Flynn at length about this, but part of the, the main reason that's taken off is it's just so simple, right? The product is so simple. Daily auctions, this generative NFT artwork that is at this point almost self-sustaining and I think that's, it doesn't force token holders to, to make complex decisions about designing a new DeFi protocol or, or upgrading contracts or adding new collateral assets and, and sort of making sure that the protocol will go up. Like those are all very difficult things that DeFi protocols go through that it's heavy, it goes through governance and it, like those communities just really have to be on top of things to keep the product healthy, to keep, to stay competitive with the market. Whereas with nouns, it's so simple. And the main purpose of governance and the proposal is really just, I see it like community bootstrapping, sort of marketing and, and awareness and, and creating things that sort of better, almost proselytize the, the brand and the artwork. So the design space is just much bigger. And it's not as like, it, like in terms of governance for, for DeFi protocol, just to use a compound example, like. I feel like everything goes back to how does it increase volume on the sort of protocol. And it's just, again, there's so many moving pieces, whereas with downs, it really is very simple. If people like the artwork and like the approach, then Nance holders are just like, this is something where it's fun. So it's just a much, much simpler process. Yeah. One thing I'm, you talking and I chatted about a bunch is what is it specifically that makes nouns seemingly a lot more productive? so much earlier than other, maybe public other protocols. And I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, Derek, actually. is like, is it the fact that they bootstrapped their community and their governance and that they're extremely small, right? They're being less than 500 members. And now it's, I think it's something like 300 or something. And like, would this work out when they're 10x their size, which obviously will take quite a few years, but when they're at 3000 people and the quorum for voting is, you know, 300 people, Will they still be as productive? Like how much of it is it the fact that they're just very small versus they've found a new mechanic or a new governance mechanism that truly can be applied to anything and yield successful results? 
That's a good question. I think a big part of it is definitely the small size of the community, right? Around 300 nouns have been, been sold. And I haven't looked into the data, but I reckon that a lot of nouns holders have multiple ones. So the, the number of individuals is, is actually far less, maybe closer to like 100 or, or 150. So I think that's definitely part of it. The fact, yeah, the fact that there isn't like people know sort of who's involved, the number of dance holders is smaller and the vision is more concise. I think, yeah, zooming out to five years, there will be thousands of nouns, but definitely harder to, to have like a shared vision to, to make decisions. But I think the fact that they're going about it pretty slowly, right? It's limited to one, at most one new member day. So I think that has a, has a lot to do with it. And, and you also, I'm not the deepest into, into NFTs, but an added benefit is that they have this recurring model of the daily auctions in contrast to other projects, which do sort of a one-time upfront mint, get millions or, or tens of millions of dollars, and then have this huge amount of, of pressure to, on the core team to deliver on whether it's game or sort of experience and like it takes the stuff is not easy. It takes months if not years. So that whole time you just sort of relying on, on almost hopium, right. In terms of keeping buyers engaged and it's really hard doing a bear market. So I think like the nouns model of, of having daily participants is, is really cool. Like, honestly, the price of nouns, I don't think it's really been doing well. I think like. Since inception, I would reckon that most buyers are probably underwater, but it's just, it doesn't come up super often, right? Because I think first off the, the price, a lot of nouns holders are probably whales and yeah, it's just like a daily thing. So that's really what drives the attention. I mean, for me, there's also some interesting sort of like economic innovation in the way the nouns treasury works. And what I find really interesting is that their treasury is denominated in entirely in ETH with, I think, maybe a couple of nouns in there, which means that they can fund things without diluting their equity holders, which to me is, is like a pretty big deal because I think in a lot of these DeFi protocols, every time you fund anything via the native token, which is for most of these protocols, the majority of the treasury, you're effectively diluting everyone. And so that adds, it puts a little bit of the current token holders and like a weird incentive misalignment with sort of the general good of the protocol, which probably wants to fund more things. And so nouns is almost like at the time of issuance, T-whopping its equity out for ETH, which is to me kind of cool. And it's like a, it's like a small thing, but I think it just removes a lot of friction from the process too. Yeah, it's a really good point. I can't tell you how many proposals or ideas that, that we at Revy have worked on. And a lot of the, the main comments are like, why are you proposing? Like a lot of these ideas require selling or diversifying origins of the, of the treasury. And oftentimes the first comments, the most highly upvoted or, or seen comments are like, how does this affect token price? Yeah. I mean, people, people don't want to pay, like people want the reverse, right? They want burn programs to reduce the supply. They want buybacks. They don't want more issuance. You got to protect your bags. And I think that is one of the most, like, I get it. It's, it's only human to think of like short-term price and value, but it is truly 
one of the big red flags in my mind for, in terms of communities and teams, ones that are fixated on that and fixated on short-term issuance with rewards, like at the expense of long-term growth and product, like one of the biggest sort of things I look for in terms of looking at sort of whether I believe in a protocol, for example. So, yeah, I mean, I listened to that, that episode that you guys had with Hasu on, and that's kind of one of the big things, right? It's like, uh, everybody wants to spend money doing buybacks, but it's like, what are you getting out of buybacks? You're basically cutting off long-term growth for the protocol and directly extracting value right away, which to me is almost never the right play. Things are so early. There's so much to do. And that, uh, it's sort of like a wild lack of imagination that that's, this is kind of what we want. Yep. Totally agree. And yeah, it's like, there's so many ways to allocate those funds. If yeah, I think that a lot of teams default to buybacks or, or the BD token models as one of the simpler ways to, to protect against short-term price, sort of price selling pressure at the expense of, yeah, long-term like funding ideas that actually help the protocol. I wonder if we're going to see something happen similar in similar to like in Web2 or TradFi, where a, co a company essentially go public later and later, because it feels like in crypto and Web3, we maybe over-rotated towards these ideals of decentralization, where obviously Jesse Walden sort of propagated this idea of like progressive decentralization, but the timeline under which that happens is still maybe a year, two years, which is still incredibly, incredibly fast for you know a project to quote unquote go public. And I wonder if we've just over-rotated as an industry to doing this so quickly in the pursuit of like this idea of decentralization. And in reality, like, especially if you're an application, you're not an L1, you might actually benefit from making a better trade-off among the sort of decentralization axis in pursuit of like longer-term growth and development. Yeah, it's a really good point. The cynic, the cynical take would be to say that, I think it would be that most people and most team members, founders, understand that like decentralization isn't isn't the best way to build a product if you're still early and that a lot of those teams have just been using it as a as a reasoning to launch a token and sort of get it liquid and and listed and and everything that comes along with that so it's actually kind of ironic now that it seems like we're a few months into a bear market people are being forced to it is no longer advantageous to to launch tokens and, and talk about decentralization because like there's no positive price movement. People's moods have dropped. So I think that's one of the, again, this is a cynical take, but honestly, that could be one of the reasons we're now starting to see sort of the narrative change. And I think, yeah, hopefully, hopefully over the next few months, over the next few years, like this industry is as a whole much more thoughtful about how you actually progressively decentralize, how you actually like, yeah, it's gone from zero to one very quickly, perhaps too. For, for me, this is kind of interesting because it's once this kind of mechanism slash timeline is out there, you can't really put it back. You know, it's kind of, it's the, the box is open for, for this kind of like decentralized quickly and then maybe get exit liquidity quickly. And it's like, and I'm sure there will be projects that are, you know, like either stuck because their last round privately was way too high. And now if they, if they do the token issuance, they can't match that price or they just are very thoughtful about sort of like uh, decentralizing very slowly. But I think there will be always teams who are kind of like, well, you know, we can't do this, so we will. And so for me, it's kind of almost interesting to think, okay, well, in a world where 
teams are just going to do this, can you actually build on the other end, right? On the DAO, like management ends, like tooling, processes, structures to make it actually work, right? If the incentive of the lab team is to decentralize as quickly as possible and then get liquidity, could that be like worked into sort of just everybody's planning? And then on the other side, it's like, can we build a system that makes this work? Like when you think about it, the labs team actually doesn't even own that much of the protocol. Like they own maybe 20, 30%. And that's like a lot, but it's also like nothing compared to what a founding team owns, you know, like two years into a normal startup. So maybe there's a way for us to kind of just accept that as reality and just build the systems on the other side that makes this work. I'm pretty inspired by my maker core units. I don't think they have everything figured out, but I, I think that's like a relatively functional DAO with sort of like sub DAOs and units doing things. And that's just kind of part of the re reality of, look, if the, the teams want to do this, we can make it work and keep building on top of this because we have the budget. Totally. I think, yeah, the maker or unit model is definitely an interesting case study. Talked about it a few times in the podcast. And yeah, certainly I think a lot of, a lot of new approaches and new protocols are, are taking inspiration from, from that model and, and taking the best parts using them. Switching gears a little bit in terms of like operating vector DAO and running it, like what have been some of the challenges so far, right? Like how do you guys view your role? Do you view it as sort of like execs? Do you view it as stewards? What are some of the processes and tools that you guys use in terms of just like having a, a well-functioning like team? Is it just group chats to use anything else? Just curious how you guys think about it. Yeah, Ethan can maybe talk a little bit more about the tooling we've built, but I'd say that at a high level, we've done everything sort of in like a do things that don't scale type of mentality, where in the very beginning, it was really, it was just Etong and I, and then we brought in a couple of our friends and, you know, we'd be fielding the inbound requests, interviewing new members, and then doing the work, kind of doing everything. As we've grown the membership, that sort of priority over the last six months, maybe three to six months has been how do we sort of remove Etong and John as sort of the central point of failure within the DAO where we can bring in an up-level and new sort of class of, of leads who would do a lot of the work that maybe we did before. And I think like a metric that we're tracking in addition to contributor engagement is like how many things actually fall up to, you know, myself or Etong to deal with. And that number has steadily gone down. So I view that as like a huge success. How we do that, it's really like an iterative model. So every season we try to reflect on what happened in the last season create playbooks and documentation and having the right balance of that too. You don't want to overkill with the documentation and process. So sort of providing guidelines, but giving individuals as much autonomy and power to make the decisions themselves and deviate from any sort of process that we may have if it makes sense to do so. And so that's kind of how it's worked. And I don't expect this to be the, I don't think we've cracked it by any means. Like would this work if we were 2X, 5X, 10X the size? Probably not. We'd have to come up with new, new solutions, but We've sort of been able to make it work as we grow and just finding where the pain points are and creating process around that. You also have a bunch of tools I'm sure you can, can talk through. Yeah, when John says tools, I think it's kind of over, overselling some of the stuff that we have. I mean, frankly, we have like hacked together. Like we have our own Discord bot, right? That does that helps with sort of like uh, project matching. Project matching is something that's kind of like very core to what we do. And once upon a time, it was literally John and I looking at every single thing and then try to assess who is the right person to work on this. And then now we have a little bit of like a, a bot system that passes through all the inbounds. 
asks for people to review them and then figures out what skill sets are needed and asks for volunteers. So it, it takes some of the rote matchmaking stuff from us and puts it in a little bit more of like a marketplace-ish kind of format. But it is, again, like still half manual, really. The highest leverage thing probably comes down to the incentives. Like we iterate on our compensation model. I think we've iterated on it every single season as we sort of fine tune and figure out what are the right levels of compensation that appropriately sort of reward the work that needs to get done. And I think we get closer and closer to it every season. If people don't know, for the audience, the way that it works is that every deal comes in, it's worth 100%, and we split essentially the carry. So one person gets you know X percent of the deal, another person gets another X percent of the deal based on their role. And what's been the learning curve is figuring out, oh, interestingly, like project management or like client management stuff as a project lead, it's a lot more work than we thought it was going to be. And we need to incentivize this a little more. So season three, maybe let's up that percentage a little bit and see what happens. And so that's been probably the highest leverage thing is how do we sort of tweak the incentives in a way where everyone is incentivized to do the thing that they are supposed to be doing that leads the down in a forward direction. Yeah. What are some of the main conflicts, if any, that's happened that, that Becker Davis ran into or, or you could see potentially like, have you guys ever, like whatever, to the extent that you guys are comfortable talking about, like, have you guys ever, has anyone ever had to leave? Like anything, just curious how that, how that's sort of up So it's interesting. It's like our greatest strength is also our greatest weakness, which is very cliche, but it's, it's very true. But one of the big benefits of being in Vector is that it's opt-in, like we said in the beginning, which is great because people get to do work that they actually care about. The problem with an opt-in model and an incentive-based model is that there's no, there are no consequences. So if you decide that actually I signed up for this, but I want to bail or I have other things I need to do, there's nothing really there to penalize you besides maybe getting removed from the DAO or some social stigma. But because we're all really close to it, and the truth is everyone is at the top, you know, top of their game, just ejecting someone from the DAO is not really, it would take a lot for that to happen. And so there's a good amount of leeway and patience. That being said, inevitably, there are going to be times where this happens. And unlike with a traditional company where maybe we can put you on a PIP or change your compensation or something like that, we don't have those levers. And so those are challenges. And I think it's kind of a challenge in crypto more broadly, right? This is kind of the ethos of Bitcoin even, right? You should be incentivized to do the right thing. The incentives to do the wrong thing should be so great that you would never want to do those things. And that's the way we think about it as well with Invector and trying to resolve these types of conflicts. Totally, totally makes sense. Are there any tools or things that you guys wish existed that could be used for Victor now? Like what would make your lives easier? It sounds like there's a, a few different things you guys have built in house to help scale your guys' time and, and sort of ensure consistent quality and themes. But is there anything else that you guys wish existed someone would build that, that you guys could use? Oh, man, I think John and I might have each our own individual answers on this. We haven't really talked about this before, but for me, it's like a widely adopted reputation standard. I think that to go to some of the, the the points that John was making early on is that what happens if you don't do well, right? Like the, right now, the the most that could happen is that, well, you don't get your allocation, right? It, you just get nothing. And then socially, like it is known in the people who are paying attention that your reputation just took a, a hit from not doing this well or from bailing on something. But that is not 
that that is not carried with you, right? So if you if you wanted to just refresh, you could just join some somewhere else and then do this again. And without sort of like a shared reputation standard, I think this sort of stuff becomes it's a little hard to track. And on the other end, it's, it's sort of like a uh, there's the positives of this too. It's like, how does somebody know that you're a very trustworthy, reliable person? I think today, a lot of this is done via some kind of stake, right? It's like, look, I have a big stake in this and I, you know that I'm, I'm not trying to lose the stake. But ideally, this is not wealth-driven and it's more of like, a, look, I have a reputation score and a track record of being a trustworthy person. A lot of folks have spoken about this idea of on-chain credentialing, which is using your history of contributing activity and on-chain behavior as a way to credentialize reputation for the future. I think it applies to, to project token distributions, airdrops, it applies to incentivizing contributors. Is that an idea that, that could be useful here for, for you guys as well? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a little bit the holy grail, right? It's like, it would be useful if it was used, but it is not widely used and therefore not useful. For, for me, like uh, this sort of like on-chain reputation is, is very much of an adoption question. So how do you how do you design a reputation that actually gets adopted and people have an incentive to adopt? Now, I don't really have a good answer for that right now. And so uh, that's why we don't we don't have one and we, we have we've been still looking for it and have not found one that we're comfortable aligning on. Yeah, the, the key here, just to expand on what Yutong is saying here is like, we've thought about, you know, building out our own vector.specific reputation program and, and maybe we could do so. And, and I have no doubt that it would actually have some level of use or effectiveness within aligning incentives within our DAO. The question is, is how you make this work at a, at a sort of across, or a sort of in a global way, right? Where our credentials are usable beyond our ecosystem. And maybe there isn't a way where that makes sense. And it, it's truly just going to be like a bunch of local reputation systems that have their own highly specific ways of accruing reputation or losing reputation. We've been approached by like so many DAO tools at this point, and we haven't actually signed up for very many beyond like sort of basic like financing type things. And one of the big problems there is that our use case is so specific that they would have to build probably an entirely unique product just for our use case. And so I think that's the big question for us in, in general. It's like, how, how do you build something that's like generalized, but also powerful enough per community? And that can be adopted in a way where the actual reputation that you're earning or that you're losing is valuable. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it is difficult to build a truly generalized product across all these different kinds of, of DAOs because there are separate kinds from investment DAOs to service DAOs to NFT investing ones. So yeah, definitely a large threat. If I were to answer this question, a tool that I'm, there's a bunch of like operational tools, I think that would help us improve the efficiency of our DAO. Those are mostly boring things, but I kind of mentioned this earlier, but I'm, I'm really, I'm intrigued by this idea that more and more people will form relationships online with net new people, which I think is a strictly different behavior than existed in sort of previous generations of social networks. And so I'm, I'm kind of like keen to see higher fidelity or more interesting ways for people to do work together online in a way that yes, one is about doing work, but two also prioritizes like the social aspect of the social element of this, which hasn't really been the case pre-COVID with co-located work. And so a lot of our productivity tools are built for efficiency. So things like Slack or things like project management software. And I'm kind of curious to see if there's going to be a new wave of work software that sort of prioritizes the community or the social aspects of work as first-class citizens in the feature set. In general, I'm just very... I'm pretty bullish that this will become 
like a larger and larger trend based on what I'm seeing in Vector, where community has become such a big part of the value prop. And it, it's clearly, in my opinion, obviously biased, but clearly a superior way of doing work if you're a freelancer. And there aren't really like Discord is sort of our go-to, but it wasn't designed for that. So I'm kind of curious to see products that do stuff like that. Yeah, just to add on to that, I think Discord is one of the few tools that in the productivity space that doesn't have a per seat pricing model. And I, I think that's a kind of really big deal, right? Like loosely affiliated organizations that are really more communities than they are sort of like entities, they have a hard time paying for seat because who knows, who knows if somebody who comes who just wants to do this once should get a seat or not. And I, I think the reason Discord is even in this bucket of sort of a community pricing is because they're, they're not a productivity tool to begin with. And it's that they've just been co-opted by these sort of community to become somewhat productivity tools. So I, I'm excited about tools that have a business model and a pricing model that is oriented towards a something that is not, that doesn't assume that everybody is a full-time seat at a desk. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective. I've never, never heard it, it framed like that, but it's definitely definitely rings true. It's like a lot of these productivity tools, Notion, Slack, the bill adds up pretty quickly once you start to get a meaningful amount of people. So yeah, definitely, definitely will be interesting to see. Yeah. Like imagine if every comp holder could have a Notion account, like that would run comp, like the bill would be crazy. The DAO wouldn't be able to. to, to yeah. Talk about diluting comp holders, right? You got to yeah, sell, sell comp to uh, pay for Notion. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new governance proposal that <laughs> Notion subscription reverts to the Heard it here first. Us? Oh, well, guys, really appreciate you taking the time to come on today. For any listeners that are interested in, in learning more, whether they're contributors, customers, or, or just folks interested in checking out your work, what's the best way for them to, to get? You know, Twitter's probably the best avenue. Our Twitter is at VectorDAO. Second best place is our website, VectorDAO.com. Us, make sure in the show notes. John and Yitang, really appreciate you guys coming on today. I think, yeah, spoke a lot of, about a lot of things that the three of us have spoken about together over various calls and over the past few months. So it's been, it's good to just chat through them on this podcast and and, and sort of, share our thinking publicly. So yeah, really enjoyed talking with you guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. This was a blast.